Amen. If you have elementary age kids um, or below, we'd love them to be a part of our Vine Kids time. We're going to have them go. They can go right out the back door with Miss Rhonda. I see her back there. And also, if you have a fifth and sixth grade, uh, right up into seventh grade, we've got a great opportunity for those guys and girls uh, back there as well. Um, so we'd love for those kids to be a part of what we have going on with our Vine Kids folks. Um, exciting, awesome stuff. Glad you're here. Welcome again. If you are here for the first time, we want to tell you what a privilege it is to have you in worship with us. It is a joy and an honor that you would give us part of your Sunday morning. Um, you've caught us in the middle of the beginning of a study of John. So we, uh, we began 17 weeks ago walking through verse by verse the gospel of John. And I say this each week. John's gospel is really different. It's different than other journeys that we've been on, our journey to the book of Acts or Philippians or Ruth or any of those things that we've sort of taught through over the years because John has this real singular focus. He's not so interested in geography or stories or history. John is interested in Jesus. He wants us to see the deity of Christ. The entire gospel is written so that we might see that Jesus is in fact God. And we're going to see that actually played out this morning a lot. And so John is interested in that, which makes my focus really easy as a teacher or as a preacher. And that is that I just want you to see Jesus. This is what John's entire gospel is built on. And so our entire study is going to be finding Jesus, the incarnation, God in the flesh, right, uh, in this gospel. And so it makes that pretty easy. Well, we're in week 17, and we've been for the past five or so weeks in the middle of this section where John is recording Jesus demonstrating his deity through encounters with people. And not perfect people, but like really kind of broken people. And it began with Nicodemus and his sort of questions that he had when he came to Jesus about being born again. And it kind of traced its way all the way up through the woman at the well and even into last week where Jesus heals this man who had been crippled for 38 years. And, and all those encounters had this one singular thing that Jesus was showing his deity. He had, he had command over not just the forces of nature or you know, physiology, but over life. And John is showing us Jesus' deity as he encounters people. Well, he's going to shift in the middle of chapter 5 to a, a section where Jesus is now going to begin to defend himself. The Pharisees and Jesus' kind of conflict is going to come to a height, right, this morning. And Jesus is going to begin the process of defending himself. And his own words are actually going to be pointing to his deity. And so John is shifting our attention from Jesus' encounters with people to show his deity to Jesus' actual words, defining himself um, who he is, and his own divine nature. And that's going to begin today. And it's actually a very deep sort of section. Uh, it's it's a, one of the longest discourses that John records where Jesus is just sort of talking. And so we're going to take it in pieces. Um, there's just too much in there to really tackle it all in one. And as you know me for any period of time, I can't get real far. And so we're going to get through three verses today. Right. So this is why John's going to take us a decade. But we're going to get through three because we've got communion, we've got some other stuff, but because he's setting the stage, and I, I want to lay the groundwork for what John is going to use as an anchor for the rest of the gospel. And it's some stuff that we've heard, but it's also some things that we need to remember because Jesus is going to begin this defense of who he is to the Pharisees by basically stating his, his divine nature. And, and we're going to point out some of those things and look at them today. So if you've got your Bible, we're going to be in chapter 5, starting in verse 15. Now, because our text today is directly connected to the miracle that happened last week, let me give you a quick recap for those of you that weren't here, just so you can kind of understand what's
what's going on because it is directly connected to what's unfolded, unfolded last week. So at some point in time, Jesus had left Cana where he had healed the, fit relig- or the religious or royal official's son uh, who had been dead, right? He had raised him from the dead. At some point in time, he had left Cana and he had journeyed back to Jerusalem for a, a feast. And when he got to Jerusalem, it says that he went to a pool, the pool of Bethesda, which was out by the east gate. And it was a place where a lot of people that had ailments, physical handicaps gathered because there was a legend about this pool that if you gathered there every once in a while, an angel of the Lord would come down and he would stir the waters. And if you could get down to the water and you were the first one in, you would be healed. That was the legend. And so out there at this east gate on the east side of the city, this group of people would gather in hopes that maybe this legend were true and there would be a miracle that was waiting for them. Well, Jesus, uh, because this is what Jesus does, it was spending time there instead of at the temple where all the festivities of the feast were happening. And, and he encounters this man who he learned had been crippled for 38 years. 38 years he had been in this condition where people had brought him most likely every day either to that pool or to some gate by the city or the temple to beg. That was his existence. And for 38 years, this is what he's known. And, and he goes up to this, this guy, and he basically just says, do you want to be made well? And we talked a lot about this last week. really translates better. Do you want to be made whole? And we talked about that. And the guy said, I don't think you understand. Every time I try and get down to the water, when it's stirred, somebody beats me to it. In other words, there's no possible way, right? Well, Jesus heals him. Tells him to get up and take his mat and walk, and he does that, and he walks. He leaves the pool. He doesn't even know who it is he's talking to, but he leaves the pool, and he walks back towards the temple where some Pharisees see him, and he's carrying his mat, which was a mat that, that people who were handicapped used to lay on the ground, right? It was basically a straw mat that had been woven that they drug around, and they laid there so they didn't have to lay in the dirt. And he was walking up by the temple, and he had this mat in his hand. The Pharisees come up to him, and they say, what are you doing? Don't you know that today is the Sabbath? You are forbidden to carry that mat. We talked about this last week because they had sort of, well, it's not really what the law said, but they had turned the law into their own sort of legalistic interpretations. The Pharisees had made an entire way of life having issues with this thing, had made their entire way of life on parsing out the legalistic nature of the Mosaic law. So if the law said, don't work on the Sabbath, the Pharisees would say, well, what does work mean? And they had actually created 39 different laws to define what work on the Sabbath means, okay? And one of those was you can't carry your own stuff, and I'll get to this again in a minute. He was breaking that law on the Sabbath, or so the oral tradition the Pharisees created, they held it on the same level as Scripture itself, and they said, you're breaking the law because you're carrying your mat. Now, Jerusalem's a tiny town. They knew this guy. He had been around. It was... uh, 38 years, the Pharisees probably knew who he was, but here they are more concerned with, right, the fact he's carrying his mat, and we talked a lot about that. But they said, who, you know, what are you doing? You can't do this. And the guy said, uh, well, the guy who healed me told me to do it, so there you got that. And they said, well, who healed you? And the guy goes, I actually don't know, somebody. So he went back to the temple, and sure enough, Jesus encounters him later and says, hey, listen, stop sinning or something worse may happen, kind of making a connection between, hey, look, you know, eternal life is so much more important than our physical life. And long story, the guy goes and tells the Pharisees, and they go, it was Jesus. He's the one who healed me. And the Pharisees are furious. And we're going to begin today at that moment because the Pharisees are going to, they're going to confront Jesus on his breaking of the law, 
healing this guy on the Sabbath and forcing this guy, if you will, to carry his mat. And this is going to begin a shift in John's gospel. From this point forward, this conflict is going to be leading us to the crucifixion of Christ. That is where John is taking us. Jesus' ministry has left the sort of kind of rainbows and hugs phases and is now into pure conflict. And the Pharisees and religious leaders are incensed in what Jesus is doing. And he is now running headlong into culture. And that culture is going to ultimately lead him to his own death. And so that's where we're going to pick up today in the middle of that conflict. And we're going to look at those three verses and we're going to explore some claims that Jesus makes. They're going to set the tone for the rest of this section because they are groundbreakingly important for our understanding of the divine nature of Jesus. So if you've got your Bible, let's turn to John chapter 5 and we'll explore that um, together. So before we do that, let's take a moment and let's, let's just pray together. Lord, I know that's a, a lot of just chatting to get us up to where we are, but it's really connected. It's important to understand Scripture in its context, and it's important to understand the whole of Scripture and the redemptive nature of it. And, and so, Lord, I, I'm grateful that your continuous story uh, is flawless, and it is true, and it weaves together in this sort of beautiful rhythm. And God, I'm grateful that today it's as relevant as it was 2,000 years ago, now that it never changes. And we're grateful that an encounter with your word is actually an encounter with you. And so, Lord, we take a moment to pause before we open your word and just ask you to teach our hearts. God, we cannot understand you apart from your revelation. You have to reveal truth to us. And so, God, we ask that you would do that this morning. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord to teach you something. I'm not sure what that is or whatever he needs to speak to you today. Just ask the Lord to teach your heart this morning. Pray for someone beside you, in front of you, behind you. Even if you don't know them, I mean, even if you've never seen them before, we do this every week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. Take a moment and pray for someone around you this morning that God may move in them. Lord, we turn our time over to you. We ask you to teach and instruct our hearts, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so three short verses coming right on the heels of that healing. The Pharisees are going to confront Jesus because this man that was healed had just gone back and told them, this is Jesus, the one that healed me. After 38 years, I'm now walking, and he told me to do this on the Sabbath, so I'm going to do it. So if you look at verse 16 and uh, 5, we'll look at those three verses. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So we've got to get to the crux of this problem because it's going to actually fuel the rest of this chapter. And the the crux of this problem is really important because it's going to be a point of contention for Jesus and the Pharisees for the remainder of his ministry. It's actually going to be a place that we continue to go back to because it's not so much about the Sabbath, but instead the nature of religious life, right? And so there's a problem going on. And the problem, as I mentioned, begins with this idea of work on the Sabbath. And it kind of began at creation that God had instituted this sort of method or this mode or this pattern in creation that says on the seventh day, 
God rested. So he made all things, right? The universe and all things in them. And on the seventh day, God rested. He created that pattern and he established in the Mosaic law that we should take the Sabbath and make it holy. That it becomes a day of rest. Well, the Pharisees created this understanding of the law that says, what does that really mean? So if we've got to rest on the Sabbath, what can or can't we do? And they had created an entire legalistic lifestyle out of this. And what it boiled down to was that on that particular understanding, they believed that God could work on the Sabbath, but humanity could not, right? Not really hard to get to, but that's what they believed. And they actually had a legalistic thought process to get there, okay? So there were 39 additional rules that the Pharisees came up with to define what work on the Sabbath meant. 39. What kind of knots you could tie, what kind of work you could do. Well, the 39th of those was this that you could carry or move, that you couldn't carry or move the things that you had dominion over, okay? So the 39th oral tradition the Pharisees had about that law was that you could not move your things that you owned, all right? So the question the Pharisees dealt with was, could God move the things that he owned? So if God set the pattern in, in creation of resting, was God above his own pattern? This is the thought process, the legal thought process that the Pharisees lived with, and even created for themselves. And here's how they justified it. They came around and basically believed that God had dominion over all creation. And since he made creation, right, since he breathed life into it, he had dominion over it. He was therefore not, right, responsible or under that 39th law because he was infinite and he had dominion over all creation. Therefore, God was allowed to do things on the Sabbath. But humanity, which didn't have sort of total dominion over creation, and was finite, did not have the same uh, power that God did and therefore could not work. And they actually thought that out. Sounds super ridiculous to you and I, but the reality is that's how they came to it. God can work on the Sabbath because he has dominion over all things. Humanity cannot work on the Sabbath because it does not have dominion over all things. Even though it may have dominion over certain things, it's not a creation dominion, and therefore humanity cannot work. So here's Jesus healing on the Sabbath in violation of that, because only God can work on the Sabbath, right? And Jesus actually does a couple of things. One, he heals a guy, and two, he tells a guy to walk. Therefore, Jesus has a double secret probation locking rule thing, and he's in double trouble, because not only did he violate the law himself, but he caused this guy to violate the law, and they are furious. And it's really hard for us to understand why they're so incensed until you realize that the entire existence of the Pharisees was built on the keeping of these rules. Everything they had studied, everything they had learned, everything they had commit their lives to, this was their role in society. And if, if that culture gave up on that, their identity was gone. And so they kept that to the core, and it was a huge deal. And so they are furious. And we have to understand that problem because Jesus was breaking the law in their eyes, which was actually punishable by death. So we've got this problem that we're dealing with, right? We have to understand the crux of that problem was one of humanity versus deity. It wasn't just about work. It was Jesus was doing something that only God was permitted to do, all right? That's the crux of the conflict that Jesus is going to have with the Pharisees pretty much at every single corner, okay? So we've got that problem. 
But bigger than that problem are sort of the, the, the statements that Jesus makes in the middle of that, which are really important. So the Pharisees basically stop Jesus, and they stop this man, and they say, you can't do this. And Jesus makes some very strong statements to them that are going to pave the way for our understanding of the rest of this chapter. He says, my father is always at work, even to this day. Now, if you think back to creation, okay, there's another sort of, this, this little study we're doing here is a little bit more theologically driven than some of the other stuff that we've done, so, so bear with me. But if you think about creation, right, God rested on the seventh day, but God did not cease to be active. Now, that's really important, okay? God rested on the seventh day, but God did not cease to be active. Now, in the 1700s or the 18th century, same thing, right? There was a, an era that history calls the Enlightenment era, right? Or the Age of Reason. And the Age of Reason was a philosophical and intellectual movement that sort of began in Europe and found its way over into America. But in the middle of that, there was a religious movement that was born out of it called deism, right? And deism was a way of thinking about the relationship that God has with creation. There's some very famous Deus, Thomas Jefferson, and others that were part of our sort of early history as a country. But during that period, deism was gaining incredible prominence. And deism believed this. They believed that God was like a watchmaker, okay? He made the gears, and he made the hands, and he made the mechanisms, and he put everything together, and then God wound up that watch and set it into motion. And, and God treated, created, created, uh, treated creation like that. God made the stars and the moon and the laws, and he created all the sort of laws of nature, and then he spun them into movement, and he let them go. And then God stepped back and has zero interaction with creation after that. So once God created the universe and all things in it, and he spun the laws of nature into to movement, God steps back and he just allows to happen whatever will happen, right? So the deists believed that God went hands off after creation and all the orders that he put in place from the natural order of things, right, to the way the stars kind of move and orchestrate was God's spinning of that thing into place and then letting it go. Deism. Well, today we don't have, uh, deism really isn't much of a thought process, but there is infiltrating our sort of religious circles another naturalistic view of science that is actually very similar. And that natural, naturalistic view of science is sort of a similar concept that says that I believe that God put the laws of nature in place. And then God allows those things to play out while he watches a little bit from a distance. So that science may have got its beginnings from creation, but then God goes hands off after that. And so we can step back and see what God has done and we can look at creation and we can wonder at the universe and the mountains and the trees and all those things. And we can see them and we can know there is a creator, but we can also know that God has stepped back from all the consequences that creation does and happens, right? It's a very naturalistic view of things. The problem with both deism and that naturalistic view of science that we, a lot of us hold today, is that it's, it's not a biblical view of God or of creation, right? It's one that answers our own struggles and our own fears and our own under, misunderstandings. But it's not a biblical view because a biblical view of God basically has God being involved in creation from the onset and not ceasing to be active. Resting on the seventh day does not mean that God ceased to be active, but that God is at work and always at work throughout creation. And in fact, we learn that all things hold together because of him. In fact, if God was not moving, the entire universe would cease to be, it would fall apart. In fact, we talk about that even in one of our worship songs today, that in him we have our movement, our being, right? 
A lot of that idea is summed up in a real kind of nuanced theological concept called the providence of God. And I've talked about it before when we get into it, but the providence of God essentially is the fact that God works in and through all creation for his glory and his purposes always. So that God is always at work. Now, the reason this is important is because what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees is essentially that God has not stopped working, right? He says, my father, God, is always at work even to this very day. Now, I find this incredibly comforting because there are a lot of things in our life that we've asked ourselves, and I've posed these questions out here to us before. God, where are you? Right? Times that we've looked at things going on in our life where they've fallen apart, have been catastrophic, or we've struggled, or we've wondered, and we said, God, where are you in the middle of all this? And what Jesus is giving testimony to here is that God, and I'll talk about him saying his father in a moment, but that God is always at work even to this very moment, this very day. God is always at work for his glory and his purposes. Right? And I find this really comforting because I don't believe that Scripture teaches that God created the universe, breathed life into it, and then rolled it down the lane like a bowling ball and just waiting to sort of see what happens as it plays out, or that God set the universe in motion like a great watchmaker and then stood back and goes, let's watch this thing tick and whatever happens, happens. But that God is moving and ordering and working through creation to bring about his glory and purpose, which means even in the middle of our struggles, even in the middle of those times where we go, God, where are you? We can trust that he is always at work. And what Jesus is telling the Pharisees is he's saying, God is always at work, even in this very moment to this day, which was the Sabbath. God is always at work. And that's really important to understand, right? That God is always at work. So then Jesus ties this thing together by kind of equating himself with this special relationship with God where he says, therefore I too am always working. Right? So God, my Father, is always working, and therefore I too am working. Now Jesus is essentially saying one of two things here to the Pharisees. He's essentially saying, um, well, I am above the law since I'm working too, right? Your, your version of the law of whatever this Sabbath law is that you've created here, I am above the sort of moral compass of that law. So I am healing on the Sabbath and working on the Sabbath because I am above that system. He's saying that. Or he's saying that I am within the system and like God, I am permitted to work also. Those are the two things that basically he's claiming. He's either saying I am morally above the Mosaic law and the law that you've created. Or two, I am within the structure of the law, but like God, right, like God, I actually have the right to do this. What's interesting is that Jesus doesn't actually argue with the Pharisees over their ridiculous interpretation of the Sabbath law. The Sabbath law actually, when you really got down to it, was that you weren't supposed to be doing the things you do on the other six days during the Sabbath, right? The normal, normal seas of life, we were supposed to take a breather and a break from to honor and worship God, right? Not the once-in-a-lifetime healing of a man who had been crippled for 38 years did not apply to that every day break and breath of God, right? Jesus didn't argue with them the, the sort of nuanced brokenness of their own legalistic understanding of the law. He just simply says, I too am working. Putting himself in a place where he's saying either I am above the law or I have permission to work within its context because like God, I too am sort of exempt, if you will. And the Pharisees get this immediately. 
Because Jesus puts two pieces in there that make it really powerful. One, he says, my father, right? He says, my father is always at work. Now, the Jewish people claim to be God to be their father, but as a collective sense, as a people group, they would never have called God their father individually. This is something Jesus does continually because Jesus has this unique, incredible relationship with God where he is the son of God. And Jesus is beginning to speak plainly into these truths. And it's going to set the tone for all that we see the next few weeks. He also has this sort of nuanced, special relationship that he kind of points to where he says, because God is my father, I too am working. Now, this just sets the Pharisees off like crazy. In fact, in verse 18, John tells us that they were so angry that not only they persecute Jesus more, but they tried even harder to kill him, which means they were already wanting him dead, but they were trying even harder to kill him. And what John is telling us is that this, this dilemma, this crux, this problem, this struggle was going to lead ultimately to Jesus' death. John turns his book on these verses to say everything at this point in time is going to lead us to the crucifixion, which is going to lead us to the resurrection, which is going to bring about the evidence, the perfect and beautiful evidence of the divinity of Christ. But both of these things, and I'll kind of wrap it up with both of these things, point us to one incredible foundational truth, right? God is always at work. My father, Jesus says, is always at work. Therefore, I am working. Jesus is getting to one incredible foundational truth, and that is this. Jesus is God. Now, we can't miss this because this is incredibly important to John's gospel, and it's incredibly important theologically. Remember John chapter 1, verse 1, way back when we started this whole thing, where John 1 actually says this. It says, in the beginning, right, was the Word, right? The Word is Logos, it's Jesus, it's, it's the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You remember that? And what John is saying is that in the very beginning, before time ever was, Jesus was. He was pre-existent. There was never a time that Jesus wasn't. And not only that, but Jesus was, in fact, God. They are of the same essence. They're laying the foundation of the movement of the Trinity, right? Jesus is, in fact, God. And what Jesus is doing here with the Pharisees is he is laying out the foundation of this relationship, right? That Jesus himself is God. My father, right, is always at work, and therefore I am working. And what he's going to tell us next week is that he does what the father does. And the father does what Jesus does. And this is going to throw the Pharisees into a just turmoil. But for me, in the middle of all this, and the reason I want to spend some time here today is because I want us to understand the foundation of what we're getting ready to get into. Jesus is not just some moral teacher. We walk around and we read some writings, we high-five each other, go, hey man, countercultural, pretty cool. Jesus' teaching is great. The truth is, is that Jesus is God himself. And that his words have the authority of God's words. And his actions are the actions of God. And that God is always and forever at work. And Jesus is always and forever at work as God. And there are times in our life when we wonder where that is, when we wonder where his voice is or where his movement is or why everything seems so hollow and void at times. But the confidence and trust that we put in God is that he is always and forever at work for his glory and his purposes and that Jesus, right, was a manifestation of God's incredible glory, the incarnation that he sent to die for us so that you and I might have 
eternal life that begins in this very breath. Not when we die, but today in this moment that we get the life that God has called for us through Jesus Christ. Most of us have created, or a lot of us have created some version of religion that we want to believe in that is a, a kind of a, a fusion between a naturalistic, deistic view of God and one that we can see and understand and trust. And it's led us to bankruptcy. It's led us to a place where we feel like God is set to entertain us, right? To provide for us. And when he doesn't, we ask ourselves where he is. But what we're beginning to see, and what we saw last week and the week before, what we saw this week, and what we're going to continue to see is that God is not here to move for our purposes, but that God exists for his glory and his purpose to bring about what he is doing. And he is always and forever at work for his glory. And that God is moving in you and in me for his glory. Not for my comfort, right? But for his glory to bring about his purposes and his ways. And I find that incredibly great because if this whole thing spins around me, we're done. If this whole life that I've built is around my comfort and my existence and God pleasing me, what a lie. But this whole thing exists for God's greater glory and that we can be used in his incredible story, right? His redemptive story in which Jesus plays the key and functional role where all of creation moves towards the glory of Christ. And this is what the Pharisees can't stand because the shift went from the law and their identity to the person of Jesus Christ. And most of us, when it shifts off us, we start to have identity issues. All of our attention focus in life should be pointing to the person of Jesus Christ. He gets all glory forever and always. And this morning as we celebrate communion, it really is that incredible reminder that God gets all the glory. Like he is the one that has done the work. He is the one that is rescuing. He is the one that is saving. He deserves all the glory. And that the Jesus that we sing about and we talk about is not a separate God or some moral teacher, but that he is in fact a manifestation or the manifestation of God himself. That Jesus is God, right? And all of his infinite, incredible glory and Jesus' entire life was to bring about God's purpose and God's glory. And what we celebrate at this table is that truth. That God sent his son Jesus to die to give us life that we might know him. Know him and be moved towards holiness. And to have a life that is being used for his purpose and his glory and not for our entertainment. Not for the 40 or 50 or 60 years that we get here or whatever. But for the purpose and redemptive nature of God. This table was the picture of Jesus' life laid out for us. And it's one that we celebrate with believers all over the world, right? It is a table for those that profess faith in Jesus Christ. It's not a denominational table, right? It's one for everyone who says, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And it's a reminder to all of us across space and time that we are united by our relationship with Jesus Christ and not simply by what we look like or where we're from or where we worship but that we are connected in unity through Christ because what he did for humanity, that if we put our trust and faith in him, we have eternal life that begins in this very breath and continues everlasting. On that very night that Jesus was betrayed, the night that he would sit with his disciples and he would scrub their feet on that night where everyone would desert him, right? 
he sat with him and he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and he said, this bread is my body broken for you. In the same way, after he took the bread, he took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant poured out for you. That as long as we take of this bread and this cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. This morning, as always, we take communion by means of intinction, which is a simple, fancy way of saying, as you come down, take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup and you can eat it. We also have gluten-free options for those of you that have those things going on. That'll be available as well. We'll have stations in the front or the back. We encourage you that as you feel led, as God moves in you, that you would just stand up and come and partake and then remain standing so that we can close our time and worship together. I'll invite our servers to come forward and let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful for your providence. We're grateful that you are always at work and always moving. We're grateful, God, that you move in spite of what we see, that you move in beauty and grace, that, God, you are at working even when we wonder where you might be, when our human minds can't trace that. You are always and forever at work for your glory. And, God, you never have ceased working. There hasn't been a day when you weren't active, when your breath wasn't holding every movement of creation together, where the stars aren't being held by your very hand. God, everything falls apart if you cease to be. So Lord, we take our time as we worship and as we take communion to celebrate that truth that even our very lives are nothing without you. That without Jesus' death and resurrection, God, we are lost. We are empty. We are dead. But God, through Christ, we have life, eternal, real, abundant life. And this celebration this morning is a reminder of that truth and a proclamation of how we want to live. So as we take communion, we celebrate and worship, Lord, we pray that you would draw us closer to your presence, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you feel led and called, as Don and our worship team lead us, come forward and in the back of the room, and then you can remain seated. Standing up.